Welcome to the Real Rescue Podcast, brought to you by Vertical Helicast. This episode of the Real Rescue is being sponsored by Breeze Eastern. They dedicate themselves to our helicopter rescue world. Since the very first helicopter rescue in November of 1945, Breeze Eastern has designed and manufactured superior rescue hoist solutions. While much of the technology and the unique mission requirements have changed over the past 75 years, their commitment to the rescuers, the operators, and those being rescued has not. Contact them today by visiting them at breeze-eastern.com. Coming up next in this episode of The Rail Rescue. We're joined by a U.S. Coast Guard pilot who did 28 years in the U.S. Coast Guard. She comes with some wonderful stories here. And since she's gotten out, she has brought in a book club to a whole new level. Literary Aviatrix is the website, and she is running it. Reviews of books of women in aviation from all over the world. It is awesome. So please welcome our next guest, Miss Liz Booker. My name is Jason Quinn. I am United States Coast Guard Rescue Swimmer number 500. These are my rescues and rescues from those of us that put our lives on the line every day so others may live. This is The Real Rescue Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to The Real Rescue. Today I've got another U.S. Coast Guard pilot with us. She was also a ops boss and did a whole bunch of stuff from all these different things throughout her career. Ladies and gentlemen, Miss Liz Booker. What's up, ma'am? How are you? Jason Quinn, thank you so much for having me. I love your energy. I'm so excited about this. Oh, all right. I, this is all real. Like, this is real. I know. Oh, I know. I know you're not faking it. I could tell. <laughs> not even a little bit. So fun. So fun. Hey, thank you so much for coming on. I, I'm excited to to share a little bit of what you did and have done and doing now. This is uh this is exciting. And it's it's funny to me because in our first few conversations, you're like, I don't really have anything. As a matter of fact, I, I think I can quote you and say all my stuff was very vanilla. <laughs> but I don't care. That's the greatest part about it. I don't <laughs> care because there's a story, and with every story has a lesson, and every lesson somebody can walk away from something. And that's so exciting to me. And I love it. You're anyway. so right. You're so right. Yep. Because it's all fun. I mean, it, you know, from the little broken toe to the yeah. big 40 foot waves, which I've never seen. So everything <laughs> in between. I'm good. So, but anyway, uh, you know what? I am going to throw this out there to you or to everybody else, because I, I like to do this. So while you were in, you actually earned yourself quite a few awards. And I'm just going to rattle them off. Um from 1999 to 2003, you earned yourself a Coast Guard Achievement Medal. From 2003 to 2007, that earned you a Coast Guard Combination Medal. In 2010, you were uh, Captain Dorothy Stratton Award was uh, given to you. You earned an, uh, a Letter of Accommodation in 2010 for a SAR case. From 2010 to 2013, you earned a Coast Guard Combination Medal. From 2013 to 2016, Defense Meritorious Service Medal. And 2017, 2019, Defense Superior Service Medal. Just to name a few. 
Well done, ma'am. Well done. Thank you, Jason. <laughs> You're welcome. You're welcome. Now, how did all that happen? Where did it all start for you? How did you come into the Coast Guard? What brought you to be a pilot? It started when I was five years old. I wanted to be an astronaut. And somebody told me that I needed to be a pilot first. And that became my singular focus. And so my parents were in academia. They weren't around aviation, but they did their best to expose me. Like for my 11th birthday, I got to go for a flight, which was really cool with an instructor. Um, and I was like a NASA geek still. I had like all, I had this picture of me pre-flooding a plane with like all the patches from all of the, you know, launches and stuff like that, all the space missions. And I started high school in an aviation magnet school in Houston. About halfway through my 10th grade year, we moved for my mother's work to a small town in Georgia where there was no magnet program for aviation. And I really did not fit in. So like uh, I was in sort of this heavy science math program, studying stuff that I loved and moved to small town Georgia where all the girls wore bows in their hair and rushed for the high school sorority. And I didn't know where I fit. At the same time, I was having some struggles with my mom at home, and I ended up moving out and dropping out of high school. Wow. And when I was 18, I inherited a little bit, right when I turned 18, I, I inherited a bit, little bit of money, and it took me about three months to blow through that. And I did not want to go crawling back home to mama. So I had, while I was in that magnet program, I was in Navy Junior ROTC. So I went to the Navy recruiter and tried to join. So I took the ASVAB and did really well. And they said, we would love to have you, but unfortunately we're not taking GEDs right now. We're going to need you to go to school for two years and then come back and talk to us. And I'm like, well, I'm here because I was hoping that you would send me to school after I served. I, like I need the college money. And they're like, sorry, we can't help you. So it was the end of the first Gulf War. None of the services were taking GEDs. And I like went home, pulled out the, the phone book, like yellow pages called all of the recruiters. And they're like, no, no, no. And I was just devastated. I didn't know what I was going to do. I did not want to go back home. Um, and I think it was really like, it felt like forever. And looking back, it was, you know, I was in turmoil for ages, but I think it really was like that afternoon that the Navy recruiter called me back and said, Hey, I set you up with an appointment with the Coast Guard recruiter. And I'm like, the Coast Guard? What's that? What the heck's the Coast Guard? <laughs> exactly. So I'm living in Savannah and the recruiter's office, like right downtown, just not, not too many blocks away from me. So I have my appointment and I walk in to the office and I look at the wall and I see this beautiful picture of a Coast Guard H-65. And I know enough to know that I, if I'm going in, I'm enlisting and I can't be a pilot. But outside the door, there's this guy dangling on a cable with fins and a mask. And I'm like, instead of the recruiter, I was like, can I, can I do that? And he was like, sure, sign here. <laughs> oh, <laughs> The next week I'm on a bus to Cape May. And so he, I don't know how it was when you went to boot camp. So this is 1991. And I had a BMC company commander and a BM2 like assistant, right? And we had this thing where you wore a green belt and you had to memorize all this crap and then you could get the green belt taken off. Well, I was go getter. And so I was like the first person to slap the bulkhead outside my commanding officer's door and, and spew all this knowledge that we had to memorize. 
And I did it. I did it. I rocked it. And then he asked me, what do you want to do in the Coast Guard? And I said, sir, I want to be a rescue swimmer, sir. And they both just like started chuckling, right? They're like, oh, really? And so he put me in front leaning rest and started making me do push-ups and push-ups and push-ups until, of course, I was like flat on my face. And he like crouches down and gets in my ear and he says, you do know that rescue swimmers, that, that is the the hardest, most physically demanding job in the Coast Guard, right? And I was like, oh, well, no, I didn't know that. And then he's like, you know, that they're going to drop you out into the middle of the ocean in the middle of the night, and you're just going to sit out there by yourself and float, right? And I was like, no, no, I didn't know that either. <laughs> he's like, do you still want to be a rescue swimmer? I was like, I don't know. Uh, maybe, maybe I'll do something else. <laughs> so that's how, that's all it took for me to quit. I didn't even have to go to ASTA school. <laughs> it's like, eh, never mind. I'll be a quartermaster instead. So <laughs> that's what I did. The other cool thing that happened when I was in boot camp is that I, I did write my mother a letter and let her know that I joined the Coast Guard. Um, and she that was very nice back. of you. Yeah. Aww. You know, Hey mom, I joined the Coast Guard. Well, she wrote me a letter back and said that she was so proud of me that her mother, my grandmother, was a spar during World War II. And Ooh, she had, yeah, and she cool. worked at the Marine Safety Office in Galveston. And my grandfather went there to register his boat, and that's how they met. Aww. Oh, there's so a story, story behind it. That's yeah, so cool. cool. So I had this yeah. great picture of my grandmother in her spar uniform. And yeah, it's really cool. And Aww. I didn't even know it. <laughs> oh, I like that. That's so cool. Thanks. Aww. <laughs> so now, all right, you get through boot camp. Where where did you go first? The Coast Guard Cutter Gentian, a buoy tender stationed out of Fort Macon, North Carolina. Nice. Yeah. And nice. so I was scraping barnacles off of buoys, questioning my choices, <laughs> Look, <laughs> looking right. up at the bridge and being like, oh, Oh, what are the, what, what are those people? And how do I become one of them? The officers. <laughs> so that's really what smart, I was doing. Smart, smart. Yeah. So, yeah. all right. I, there's a lot of people that, that don't understand or know uh, the full realm of the Coast Guard. And I will even throw myself in there. I know about booby tenders. Uh, I've, I think I've seen one from a distance, if that helps. <laughs> All right. But I've never black, been, usually, usually yeah, black. big black. Yeah. 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 They would come into port every time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So if you don't mind, just give everybody a little rundown about the a buoy tender. What what is it? What do they do? And because you were saying you were scraping barnacles. So just a little a little rundown. And for anybody that hasn't seen it, like you it was on uh, Mike Rowe's Dirty Jobs. Dirty Jobs. Yeah, correct. So correct. they went out. He went out with the Coast Guard buoy tenders and was yeah. inside the buoy and scraping. You know, so. But anyway, well, but we'll start with the assumption that the that the audience knows what a buoy is. That it marks the channel for safe passage for vessels. And, and if you're in Europe, it's a boy. A boy. Okay. A boy. Well, a boy. Yeah, so a boy. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that, those are the things that this, this ship, there are different sizes of uh, aids to navigation, maintaining vessels. And so this was 180 feet. It's long since decommissioned. <laughs> and it was a, it has like a, 
a little um, elevated platform on the front of the boat called the forecastle, the forecastle. And then there's like a huge deck in the middle with a crane on it. And then the bridge is up behind that. And so this boat was responsible for going around coastal North Carolina and up the rivers and maintaining these buoys and making sure that they were in the right position, pulling them out of the water, um, making sure. So those chains that there's a chain that goes from the bottom of the buoy down to a big typically a big cement sinker at the bottom of the ocean that holds it in place. We would pull all of that stuff up out of the water, clean it off, get make sure that the lights at the top of the buoy were working and um, check that chain and, and often have to replace the chain, you know, because it rusts in the salt water and those kinds of things. And so it's a hard working boat. It's smelly work, especially in the heat of North Carolina. So you're out there on deck with all of the sea life just squirting and squishing and rotting right there in the sun. And yeah, it's gross. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. And that's why I was looking at the bridge, like, how the heck do I get off this deck? (laughs) How do I get up there? Exactly. Oh my gosh, that's hilarious. Yeah. Well, you were uh, while you were on that buoy tender, you actually had your very first search and rescue mission. Yeah. What was that? So it was. I we didn't understand this in the moment. There was a huge storm, and I can't even remember like right off the top of my head what hurricane it was called. Um, I think I sent it to you my notes, but it was a. There were all these hurricane storms. Gloria. Gloria. Thank you. Nineteen ninety one, hurricane Gloria later known as the perfect storm. So there was a report, there were lots of things happening offshore as if you've seen the movie or read the book, you know, Um, but what we were launched on or got underway for is a better way to put that because we don't really launch a buoy tender, um, was a sailing vessel that was disabled 200 nautical miles north of Bermuda. I didn't really understand what was happening. All I knew is we were going out to rescue some people. And so we got underway in the middle of the night and my billet for, um, both for, uh, special sea detail for getting underway was the, the lookout. So standing up on the top, the flying bridge, the top of the ship to be a lookout. And I just remember, you know, we were leaving Fort Macon, the port in Fort Macon, um, North Carolina, and I was up there on the top of the bridge and it's like, you know, we're getting underway, it's dark out. And then we get out to the bar or what, you know, opening to, to the ocean. And it's just, I was like, oh my God, this is for real. There are big seas out here and we're going out in them. And I was kind of like excited about it, right? It was was like, this is the stuff that, you know, you join the Coast Guard for, even though we're going like 10 knots or whatever. (laughs) And then, so I was really exhilarated. I was excited. We were going to go do something helpful and important. And then all I remember is like, I, it, it was 200 miles north of of Bermuda, which is really far. So I can't remember how long we were underway, but all I know is I was puking my brains out the whole way there. I was so sick. And the, another thing too is like, so my watch rotation, I was paired with this kid who ha- was colorblind. So he was not allowed to stand lookout because he couldn't call the colors of lights that he saw. So I would get to stand four hours up on the flying bridge while he stood four hours at helm, which was good for me because when I was outside, I could at least like get some fresh air and maybe not puke. So like <laughs> days of puking to get out there. But 
what really stuck with me is just remembering like how we got alongside the sailboat shot them you know we had this gun that would shoot the the line over to for them to retrieve um you know the tow line so we could get the boat under tow and bringing those guys aboard and you know this was going to be a long trip back so they were going to live on our boat with us um for several days and i don't i don't remember i mean i was so junior and i was shy and i i don't remember having a personal conversation with them but i just remember looking at them with a lot of empathy i think there were three guys on the boat and they were just haggard and so so grateful for us to be there and and that was like my introduction introduction to search and rescue and and understanding like the impact that we were having and it, and it was very satisfying made me very wow. grateful that i joined the coast guard yeah. Oh man. See, that's so awesome. Like, yeah. yeah. And for those that don't understand, like you're you're in a boat. What, what's the max? You can go about 12 knots. Yeah, like literally, yeah. So yeah. you're literally underway for six days to pull three <laughs> dudes out of the water. Yeah, that's how like, they thankfully they were still on their boat, but that boat was broken. Like that boat was never going anywhere on its own. Wow. And there was just nobody else out there to help them. So yeah. They were glad. Wow. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Standing up on the, on the very top of the, yeah. of the what'd you call it? The, what's the flying the, bridge, the flying bridge. Yeah. That's gotta be fun. Yeah. That, that that would, fun. That's where I'd be like way up there. Oh yeah. Didn't yeah. they, didn't, didn't, what's his name do that in Forrest Gump? What do you got? I don't remember. <laughs> I can see you doing that right now. <laughs> Bring it. Bring it. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. I know what you're talking about now. Yeah. Yeah, that was me, my 18-year-old Liz. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't want to be a rescue swimmer, but bring on the storm. <laughs> I'm flex at you. Yeah. <laughs> what now, Hurricane Gloria? What do you get? What you got? Bring it. Oh my gosh. That's hilarious. Oh, well yeah. done to you and the entire crew. That's that's pretty awesome. To go that far and, and do everything you guys do. Out of curiosity, when you guys went up, do you remember the maybe the size of the waves at all or or by like the time no here and that's the irony okay. right like so so when we got underway shit was still happening right yeah but two days later right. it's over <laughs> yeah good point good point yeah you know like so by the time we got out there it was pretty calm like it wasn't it it wasn't it wasn't fac but like you know maybe eight feet so nothing major doable yeah, yeah. for you yeah, for you it was nothing <laughs> standing around on the deck watching everybody else work yeah <laughs> oh right on, right on no that's cool that that's uh that's very cool thank you for sharing i appreciate that one You're that's welcome. good all right well let's keep going because you had uh you had another one which is well actually then you started working as a sar controller um at group fort macon Right. Yeah. So interesting twists in life. I managed to go to a school, quartermaster a school while I was pregnant with my first child, who, Aww. by the way, who, by the way, is a BM1 in the Coast Guard now. I'm very raw. Yeah. Nice. Um, so uh, I finished a school right before my last trimester and came back to that group area to just for a year so that I could have the baby and get him settled and stuff like that before I got underway on a ship. So quartermaster a school in Yorktown, Virginia, where you learn navigation, some search and rescue stuff. And then because I got assigned to the group, um, standing watch 
uh, I was very junior, obviously, right out of A school. I think I was an SNQM when I came out. I don't even think Which I was a QM3. Semen quartermaster. quartermaster. Yeah. yeah. So it's uh, it's actually E3 slash, you're not quite a petty officer yet. Yeah. Like you had to do a certain amount of time as an E2, right? And then an E3. And so yeah. I hadn't. I hadn't hit my time yet. And so I had to finish that before I could put on my crow, I guess. So, um, I went there and even though I was so junior, I did like everything I needed to do. And I think, uh, uh I think they sent me to search and rescue school, SAR school in Yorktown, Virginia. So to be a planner, SAR planning school. And so I got to learn and I, that's back in the day when we were doing everything on paper. So I stood the watch. I didn't ever stand solo because that was usually a, an E6 or above who was in charge of, you Supposedly know, responsible. yeah. So <laughs> I would stand overnight duty, but I always had like a babysitter there, but I got qualified, which was impressive, um, for my junior stature. And it was a really good way to learn like the other side of search and rescue with the radio room right next door. You get the mayday call, you try and figure out where it is you're using. I mean, we were using like lines of position from, from radio signals. If we didn't have uh, a lot long, trying to predict where people were trying to calculate their set and drift on, you know, on paper back in the day, um, and see like, you know, if they've been out there for for two days, where would they be now? Um, all the kinds of things that all of our electronics do for us. Uh, we were doing that by hand back then. So it was a really good experience. Was that the time, that moment in time when you're like, I knew that I was never going to use this math when I was in math <laughs> class. And then all of a sudden you're using the math that you didn't think you were going to use in math class. You're like, well, oh, when am uh, I ever going to use this? Oh man. Sudden... No, it got even, it got, it gets better than that because at the time, quartermasters still had to learn celestial navigation and that was really advanced math like i that was so that was mind bending for me considering like the level of math i had gotten to in high school so yeah i was <laughs> i was challenged for sure that's yeah. awesome yeah right, so i was always everyone... good in... yeah I was going to say, I was always good in, as probably evidenced by what I'm doing now. I was always a good writer. I was never a math girl. <laughs> so for everybody yeah. out there, all the kids out there, study your math, all right? Do your math. That's right. Do your math. That's right. You never yeah. know when you're actually going to need it. Yes, exactly. we do actually use it in the real world. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Yeah. Oh so, um, so I finished at the group and my year was up. And so, uh, it was time to get underway. Cause that's what quarter masters do. So I went to the coast guard cutter Seneca, which is a 270 foot cutter out of, um, Boston, Massachusetts, which was really cool right there in the North. Go Boston! Yes. Boston. I was yeah. born in Massachusetts. So yeah, I'm, oh, I'm wait a minute. There. What? You Lemon did not stack. mention this. Le Lemon wait a Are you kidding? No, and I was born in the in the hospital where Johnny Appleseed was born. Okay, all right. So we, I'm sorry, everybody. We we got to take a twist and turn. <laughs> we grew up in adjoining towns. Well, I didn't grow up there. I was born there, but I moved away oh, when I was a baby. Man. I know. I'm sorry. Lemonster. So I was born in the next town over in Fitchburg. Yeah, that's so cool. Yeah, yeah. Look at born that. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Born and raised. Probably born like two decades after I was well <laughs> no not not no stop it maybe just a couple of years yeah okay and we'll lemon stuff that yeah wow hey. that's exciting so you're a mass hole by heart no wonder you get apparently so by birth <laughs> <laughs> all right sorry so you're back to Boston 
Coast Guard Seneca. Cutter Seneca. Yep. Coast Guard, the mighty Coast Guard Cutter Seneca. Yeah. So uh, I did a total of 11 patrols um, in wow. about two and a half years on Seneca, only one of which was up north for Georgia's banks. Um, the rest of them were down south, mostly working Haitian and Cuban migrant operations, but also some deeper south, like Southern Caribbean uh, drug and fisheries type enforcement stuff. So I was a boarding team member on that boat and obviously um, stood the watch to navigate the ship where we needed to go. Uh, and so all those Haitian and Cuban operations, half of them, you could just treat them like a SAR case. Like uh, the Haitian, so we were down there for Able Manor, which in 1994, there were just tons and tons of Cubans coming across on rafts like it was a huge so each one of those obviously like your safety of life at sea every single one of them and there were times when we were just like surrounded by rafts like as far as the eye could see and just trying to prioritize who who do we need to get to first um to make sure that they were safe and then the Haitian vessels were often like just grossly overloaded and uh you know at risk of capsizing or you know all of the all of the things that you would fear having like three four hundred people on a deck that that does not have the space for that many people um coming up alongside them to pick them up so lots of those cases um and then we had one in particular that really stuck with me um off the berry islands which i kind of gave you some info about yeah you did I, I'm ready when you are. Yeah. So this was impactful, I think, because um, I, I think on this one, because I was on watch for most of the case, which was a long case. I mean, it was, I don't remember how many hours we were, we were working this thing. Our, our ship was the on-scene commander. There were a couple of other like 110 foot boats out there helping out. A helicopter came out at one point and um, hoisted uh, one of the guys from the boat. So we came up along this boat that had, it was disabled. It had, I think, 430 people on board. Certainly oh didn't have the gosh. space for that many people on board. And uh, I think that the Coast Guard had recently, or or this were this was like a new procedure, just that we had had a vessel capsized with a lot of people on it. And so because the cutter came up along one side of it and everybody on the boat rushed to the side where the cutter was and the vessel capsized with hundreds of people on board. And I don't need, I can't speak to what case that was. I don't remember. I just remember that we were very, very cautious about how we approached this large vessel in terms of like putting our small boats in the water, having the other boats come alongside announce to the everybody to just like be cool like everybody stay still we're gonna get you all life jackets first of all nobody move kind of thing wow. and then the process of pulling all of these people off this boat and then and discovering that not every like some stuff had gone down on this boat like people had been killed people were maimed like ears hanging off so we were dealing with that kind wow. of stuff yeah so all of this chaos uh you know we're, we're putting bodies in body bags and bringing them on the boat and um putting them in the reefers so just really like a whole lot going on there um with a lot of people and it was it, 
it was emotionally impactful because you could see like moms with their babies, you know, coming on board and just being so grateful for being safe. You know, yeah. they were going to go back to Haiti probably, but at least they were safe and off of this boat. That was really scary. So, um, wow. Yeah, it was a big, fun, interesting learning experience for me. And it was because I think I was on watch and got to kind of be up there with the commanding officer and see how he he was an on-scene commander and how he tasked each unit and like watching the small boats and then and then afterwards coming off the bridge and talking to like my girlfriend who was the small boat coxswain who was driving the boat with the guy with the ear that was like flopping you know off of his head as she's trying to get up under the the 65 to hoist him you know like getting to getting that perspective that bird's eye view of this major operation and then getting down into the weeds like with my friends who were like actually doing individual things gave me like this really big picture of running a major search and rescue operation so it was cool wow another great experience but lots of stuff like that down there um yeah yay and because I did that stuff uh, later, much later, <laughs> uh, when I finally did figure out what I wanted to study and get a degree in, um, I studied Haitian and Cuban. I, I did international relations and political science because I wanted oh, wow. to understand the history behind the policies that I was enforcing. So, yeah. yeah. Nice. Wow. That's yeah. great. Yeah. It was really interesting. Yeah. Is that what brought you to be an officer? No, After I wanted degree? to be. No, I didn't have a degree uh, when I applied. Oh. Um, yeah, no, I, I, like I said, it was scraping barnacles off of buoys that made me want to be an officer. I mean, that was it. And I, I decided then and there that I wanted to do it. In fact, so I got an invitation when I had, I had, even though I had a GED, um, I had a decent um, SAT scores. Oh, nice. Randomly. Yeah. So I got this letter of invitation to the Coast Guard Academy um, to go through like their prep program. And I, and I took my little letter to my exo, his name was Bruce Tony. And, and I said, should I do this? And he goes, Liz, that place is a prison. <laughs> he says, you will get more respect if you stay enlisted and work your way up and go to officer candidate school. And I was like, okay, how do I do that? And so I actually started when I was on the buoy tender, like getting college credits. However, like they had, you could clap stuff in. And then when I was at the group, I got a couple of college credits at the community college. Cause I had the luxury of, you know, having that kind of time on land for a year. And yeah. then, um, you had to have 30, I, I think it's still the same 30 college credits. You had to be an E5 and you had to be in for four years to apply to OCS. And so when I was on the Seneca, I started applying as soon as I hit four years, I didn't, I didn't make it my first application. I didn't make it my second application. I made the alternates list and then I got picked up. So I was on the boat for two nice. and a half years before I went to OCS, but I did not have my degree yet. I did not get my degree until I was an 04. Oh, wow. That's, hey, good that's for another you. story for later in the conversation. <laughs> okay. Hey, I, I'm I'm alive for the ride, my friend. So come on, girl. <laughs> Keep it rolling. This is oh my great. Gosh. Okay. So okay. So I went to OCS. Ah, but uh, at no point when I was thinking that I wanted to be an officer did it occur to me that I could be a pilot. And I'm not sure why. It wasn't until I got selected 
And I think we had like, I had one more patrol and there was a 65 on the boat. I was just trying to think of who the pilot was. It'll come to me later. Um, and I let slip that I, that I had been interested in being a pilot, um, you know, when I was younger and he got me in the front seat of the 65 oh, off the back oh, of the ship oh, and yes. flew and flew me Trular, Steve Trular and flew me along the coast of Haiti. And I was like, this is it. I am doing this. And so I went to OCS like, I mean, I could have laid low. I could have, I basically could have slept my way through OCS. Quartermasters are in a, a complete advantage for Coast Guard officer training because we've learned all the things that you're teaching. You know, I've been to boot camp, so I've done all that crap. And yeah. really the main thing is like leadership and how to navigate a boat. Like those are the things they teach. So I could have like just kicked it and and gotten through, but I was like, nope. I'm going to work my ass off because I want to go to flight school. And so I did, I did, I worked really hard and I stuck my neck out and I took leadership roles and I finished second in my class. That's very well proud. Done, ma'am. Dang. Thank you. And I You're was welcome. one of six people, I think five or six people out of my class to apply for flight school. The top, uh, officer candidate, she did not apply. Uh, we were always neck and neck, very competitive with each other. Um, she did not apply to flight school. So, and I was the top recommendation from my school chief, which was also wonderful. Um, but I did not get in. So four other classmates who finished behind me in OCS were selected. And I was offered the opportunity to be assigned to group air station Port Angeles which was devastating for me because Ouch. I had worked. Yeah. yeah. I was like, wow, I've never worked so hard for anything in my life. You know, obviously I've failed so many times along the way, dropped out of high school, you know, I'm just a, a mess. And here I am trying to, trying to do something and thought I had it and I didn't. So, um, so I go to Port Angeles and I have a lovely tour sitting in an office with, with the most wonderful man, Tom Nelson, who's no longer with us, as you know. Um, but he was my boss and I was the assistant surface, um, operations officer. And I kept my mouth shut about, you know, about the whole wanting to be a pilot thing for the first couple of months that I was there, but then he got it out of me. And as soon as everybody there knew that I wanted to be a pilot, that I was like everybody's baby sister and they, they supported me. Um, and I got, I got accepted or picked up for flight school very shortly after I got there, maybe, maybe five months after I got there. And then the commanding officer, Phil Volk was like, well, he just wants you to do a year here and then you can go. And I was like, okay, that's, I can, I can live with that. But nice. the detailer, the detailer who had been at OPM while I was in OCS ended up being assigned to the unit. And so I requested an appointment with him and I was like, Hey man what's up? Like, why didn't I, <laughs> you know, I finished what happened there. And he told me that because I was a single mother on paper, that I was high risk for finishing flight school. Well, as it turns out of the four people they sent to flight school, three dropped out or washed out. 
So they didn't even oh. ask me. Like nobody called me. Like, hey, hey, phone a friend. Like, pick me, pick up the phone and ask me what my situation is. You know, there, it was just there was an assumption based on my gender um, that affected my career pretty significantly. And that was it's amazing what out. is written on a piece of paper and yeah. how somebody makes an interpretation of that. Yeah, yeah. And I, meanwhile, I'm, I mean, I'm with you. I was with my hu- my husband, who is I'm with now, was with me. He moved out there with me. Like we were going to be together. I had a support network, but just nobody bothered to ask. Yeah. 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 People don't do their research. Port Angeles was amazing. Port Angeles was amazing. I qualified as a duck. (laughs) Hey! Oh, all right. So for people that don't know this, a duck (laughs) is a survivor. It's a rescue swimmer survivor. So we as rescue swimmers can qualify somebody as a duck. You go through the duck syllabus and then We'll take you out in the helicopter. We'll hoist you down into the water. You disconnect from the hook. Yes, you disconnect from the hook and you float there and then we come get you and then we'll either throw you in the basket or connect you to harness to harness. And yeah, super good time. It's amazing. I love it. Most terrifying thing I've ever done. Totally confirmed my choice not to be a swimmer because when that helo, like, okay, so they put me in like the, I don't even get like proper gear. I'm in a Gumby suit. So I'm like, you know, floating in this big neoprene thing. So I could barely move. They put oh me down gosh. in the basket. And then, and then it, it was great that I did this because it really gave me a deep appreciation for what it's like for a survivor in the water when the helo backs off to do their freaking checklist to get the swimmer out the door. And you're floating in that water all by yourself, like w- expecting to get bumped by whatever marine life. I mean, this is in the Straits of Juan de Fuca. So I'm like, orcas are going to come and eat me right now. And this helicopter better hurry up and get that swimmer down here to rest me now. And I was even in distress, but that's what oh was going gosh. through my mind. So yeah, a deep appreciation. You know, one of the things that happened when I was out there, so, so they sent me, oh. I was assistant surface operations and they sent me to critical incident stress management debriefing training. So I was going to be a person who could in a situation where, you know, things were yucky or, or impactful, emotionally impactful for a crew. I could be a person who could be a peer mentor, kind of like a, not, I mean, I'm not qualified as like a therapist or anything, but like I could, you know, be there to talk with them, identify what they needed to do. So I got that training, um, which stuck with me. And actually I ended up having to use on one of my deployments. Um, but in this case, uh, I don't know if you remember the Quileute River case where there was a sailboat offshore, a disabled sailboat that needed help, and Quileute River got a boat underway, and they were crossing the bar. The boat rolled, and we lost a couple of, of um, crewmen from the boat. Oh, Do you, dang. You remember that I case? don't remember yeah. that. It was, it was so... Station Quileute River is way out at the at the corner of Washington State and or out like out on the coast in Washington State. And so Port Angeles is out sort of on the peninsula halfway out there. And um, and I was the only person who had the critical incident stress management. So that happened that night. 
went out, you know, and tried to do what I could with the crews until like more people came, more qualified people came. So just kind of being a part of that was a really interesting experience. But what for me was more impactful as a future pilot was hearing the pilots. So it was, it was like some the two of the most senior pilots, the XO and the ops boss who went out in the 65 to try to help this sailboat. And they were having their own interesting night because this was right before the Coast Guard qualified uh, pilots to use NVGs at the controls. So they had night vision goggles. They were allowed to use them for the approach to a hover, but they were not yet allowed to hover at the controls looking through their goggles. So the way they worked was, I can't remember, it was it was Ray Miller and Paul Langlois who were the pilots for this case. And I just remember them talking about this, the debriefing the whole, you know, wardroom on this experience and how one of them was on the MVGs looking out, but not at the controls and like doing their best to translate to the person at the controls what to do. And like thinking about, you know, as, as someone who got qualified when we were allowed to use MVGs, just yeah. thinking about being in that situation, it's so different. I mean, it's, it is so different. And now the MVGs, I saw the new ones recently and i was like whoa these yeah. are amazing so yeah they're um, they're unreal now yeah that yeah. gave me a, a a glimpse into the kinds of things that i would be thinking about when i finally went to flight school and um and qualified so yeah it was a it was a good year yeah. it should have happened differently coast guard but it was a good, <laughs> it was a really good year all you good know? all yeah. good yeah. Rumor has it everything happens for a reason. I'm not sure I follow um, the rumor, but that's the rumor. Yeah. Well, I make I make the most of everything that I am handed. So that's what I'm talking about. about. That's me too. <laughs> me too. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. All right. So yeah. you get to flight school and ta-da. Congratulations. Yeah. You're a pilot. Whoop, whoop. Yeah. Yeah. You know, after a year and a half of, of dealing with the Navy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I got through it. It was, it wasn't always fun. It got a lot more fun when I got over the helicopters. That's for sure. Um, uh, but yeah, I got through it. Um, and then winged on a Friday and on Monday I reported to ATC mobile for my transition course to the H 65 and went off to my first unit, which was air station, San Francisco. San Francisco. So you got to fly under the Golden Gate Bridge. Oh, I did. Yeah, we did that for training. Awesome. In fact, in fact, um, yeah. So, so many stories in San Francisco, but uh, um, the one thing that like related to to the Golden Gate Bridge was the that I got through like my syllabus. Right, you you upgrade to first pilot and then you upgrade to aircraft commander and so you go through the syllabus to get there everybody knows that so um i did my check ride for aircraft commander had successfully finished it whatever and then my ops boss and it's no fault of my own it's like the instructor pilot who took me out of my check ride took me inside the bay and so i was done like i was ready for my board i had completed everything and ops is like no i don't think so that's not good enough. She needs to go, to go offshore, offshore for a check ride. And I'm like, well, why didn't you guys figure that out 
before I finish my freaking check ride. So I get back in the plane with my air mama. I call her my air mama, Melissa Bulkley at the time. It's Melissa Hoffman. Now she lives in Australia. Um, but she was my air mama and she took me out an instructor pilot and took me, uh, and it was a fog layer, took me under the golden gate bridge out around an offshore pitch black. And I redid my check ride. Are we happy now? Yes, we're happy now. So. <laughs> well done. You did now your I'm check qualified. ride twice. Boom. Yes. yes. What? <laughs> what? Exactly. All right. So wait a minute. I, I got to ask this question now. Do you, do you remember your first case as a pilot? No. Ooh. No. Oh. No. I, it was honestly like the first, honestly. Okay. You know what I remember? Uh. This is what I remember. <laughs> So, so honestly, what I remember more than the SAR itself was, was the bullshit that I had to deal with, with these old crusty pilots, some of them prior army in their attitudes, they were just, this was the grumpiest and all y'all, if you're out there listening to this, you know, it's true. This was the grumpiest <laughs> group of cranky, bitchy, oh, four men I have ever that I ever saw in the coast guard. I was like, I worked so hard for this, like working with these guys, they were terrible. So what I remember is just like them being a pain in the ass. Every That's flight. terrible. Yeah. It's terrible. I like, I was really disappointed. <laughs> I'm so my, sorry peers, to hear that. my peers were awesome. The hangar crew was mostly awesome. Like, uh, like there were a couple of them who would like commiserate with these crusty jerks, but most of them are cool. But like, here's what I remember. I'm like on maybe my second or third SAR case. It's a, it's in the Sacramento, it's on the Sacramento river. And it's like, we're looking for a boat overturned, like on the river and we're trucking along and we see there's a boat uh, on the shore and we go, we kind of go down to check it out and we're flying along and I'm in the co-pilot seat and the aircraft commander's like, tell, tell group that this blah, 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 this is what we see. And so I'm on the radio, you know, and there's this switch up on the dash was up is in and, or up is whatever up is out and down is in whatever. So I'm like talking to the group and telling them everything that we see. And meanwhile, ahead of us are two giant sets of power lines. They're pretty high. Um, and below them is this, this, uh, windsurfing school with people like a hundred windsurfers underneath it. And we are trucking along at like 50, 75 feet under the lower power line, the power lines. And we just keep going. I'm like, at any moment, this, the pilot's going to turn, right? Like, what are we doing? And so I literally like, we're getting so close to the power lines. I'm like, whoa, uh, what's happening. So I switch back into the cockpit and I say, what are we doing? <laughs> like, that's all I can get out of my mouth is what are we doing? And this guy turns to me is like, does this make you uncomfortable? And I'm like, well, in flight school, they taught us to fly over the power lines, not under them. It's like, that's all I say. Like, that's all I have time to say. And he like cranks in the collective banks over just, just dramatic. He's prior army, dramatic, like turnout climbs to like 2000 feet and, and flies all the way back to San Francisco, at, like 2000 feet. And like, I, 
I get out of the plane. And meanwhile, he and the macker like eyeballing each other, whatever. I don't know what the swimmer was doing. Probably asleep in the back. Didn't care. Probably. But- <laughs> <laughs> At least, you know, our role. <laughs> I know you guys are back there. Uh, eating oranges. Cause I could always smell the oranges or sleeping. So <laughs> if you weren't chewing tobacco, like you weren't supposed to be, cause I could smell that too. FYI. I, that wasn't me. <laughs> that wasn't definitely not me. All right. Definitely Sorry. smell that. That would hit you like a ton of bricks. No. So, uh, so we get back and I get out of the plane. I'm like, Hey, I wasn't trying to be an asshole or anything. Like, it's just, you didn't tell me you weren't communicating with me. And again, like in flight school, they taught us to fly over the towers, not under the power lines. He was like, well, I don't have to explain anything to you. And just, just like, Oh, really? Cause I, I took this class about CRM and they told us to, you have to, explain yeah. shit to me. <laughs> so confused so my first year in San Fran was just dealing with like all of these jerks and so like I don't even remember any glory from the SAR because I just was dealing with oh my gosh sorry 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 to disappoint everyone no it's all right it's all good that no but that's a that's kind of a bummer actually and I I only say that because like I, I love this job so much and I love the stories I love what we do and to have that covered up by by yeah, bad you know, mentors. You know tough. that there is a point at which somebody needs a break, right? People, yeah. people need a break, and this was a group of people who either hadn't self-identified that they needed a break or just hated life. Like they hated, they hated flying. Now they were sick of it. They hated their wives. They hated their lives. They just hated life, everything. So you know, uh, they were just, and they all like commiserated together. It was terrible. <laughs> Man, that's, it did change. That's such a bummer. It did change after that first year. Like we started to kind of clean out, and and I am now best friends still. Like I get together with my friends from San Francisco still because we've all it's all a very tight group. So nice, very got cool. better, much better. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So outside of San Francisco, then where do we go? We're gonna divert real quick to thank our sponsors. Breeze Eastern, the world's only dedicated helicopter hoist and winch provider. Miami. So right where I live now. Yeah, I got four years in Miami. Again, doing a a lot of Haitian migrant and drug interdiction stuff along with very busy SAR around here. I mean, I like, honestly, first of all, my last name is Booker. So my first, it took me a year to catch on to this, but like we bagged crews here all the time. Like if there was a duty night, we were bagging crews and the, whoever was on the desk would just go down the list. Let's call Booker. She's next on the list. And yeah, sure. I'll come in. Yes. I'll be there. Yes. Sign me up. I like got recalled so much until I finally like, you know what? Maybe I'm not going to answer my phone every time it rings. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's let them go through that list once and then come back to me. And then I'll say, yes. no, but so like it was jamming here. Um, and then, and then when I had duty, I was driving home in the middle of the night, like most of the time too. So yeah, it was busy. It was fun. I felt really proficient, you know, second tour. Um, I felt really strong on my ship landings while I was here. That was amazing. Um, nice. Yeah, it, that felt good, but but just like every other pilot, you know, at some point, or and and maybe air crew too. I, I had a moment. Um, 
it wasn't on a SAR case. It was on just a regular patrol, like totally benign patrol looking for drug runners between Bimini and, and Miami. And, you know, we're just looking for targets of interest. It's nighttime. It's not even middle of the night. It's like it's evening. So it's no big deal. Just a regular flight. And we look down and there's like a flashing white light in the water, which is weird, you know, yeah. and we're like, yeah, yeah. Like, what could that be? Um, so we set up for an approach and I'm in the right seat and I'm going to, I'm going to take the approach. I think it was, yeah, it was a coupled approach. Um, and so catch down to a 50 foot hover, totally routine co-pilot. So my co-pilot was Rob Tucker and Rob and I had a joke with each other because I don't like to be called Beth. And he, so he always called me Beth. And so I called him Bobby <laughs> and that was like our little thing. We got along really well. Um, and he was junior to me by like at least a year. So I don't know if he was a first pilot yet, but he was, he was a baby pilot. Um, first tour. Oh yeah. So he had to be a, more than a year. So first tour. And so, uh, I do this catch and, um, something I, I let my eyes leave the instruments, which you're not supposed to do out of the corner of my, I think, cause we had our, our hover lights on and we were just, he, he was going to see if he could see what was attached to this flashing light. And I see the water, um, next to me. And I get the sensation that the water is moving forward away from me, which if is correct, that means I'm backing down. And right. I had been told this story by one of my instructors in San Francisco about how he was in a plane with somebody who backed down um, inadvertently on him and almost put them in a drink. So I was always terrified of backing unintentionally. And so I, that in all of a sudden in my brain, everything went haywire and I thought I was backing down. And I said, get on the instrument. And Bobby didn't really respond to me. So I, I just said, get on the instruments, like wanting him to back me up to make sure that, I, but I couldn't get anything else out of my mouth. And then a couple seconds later, I said it more forcefully. I said, get on the instruments. And he instantly got his head in the cockpit, took the controls that I had the controls, got us into forward flight, got us up to altitude and boom, nothing. And it took me as we turned back toward Miami, um, it took me like 20 minutes of looking at that, that shoreline, that light, that single yeah. line of white lights in front of me to recage my gyro. So that was my first ever. And honestly, like my most major ever spatial disorientation. I might've had like a little bit in, you know, under the hood in the T-34 when you're, the shadows are weird in the cockpit. Um, but this was pretty severe and, wow. and it was completely benign because Bobby did what he was supposed to do. And we had great CRM, you know, nice. and, he just took the nice. and flows back and who knows, we don't have, we never figured out what that light was in. Oh, well, <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. but, um, that, you know, that took a minute for me to be like, okay. So I got on the flight schedule for a couple of nights flights to practice my approaches to the water and kind of get my head back in the game. But, you know, it was also like the most statistically normal place for a pilot, like in terms of, of flight hours and experience, 
for you to get like level three spatial disorientation. So, wow. Um, yeah, it's, it's a thing, you know, um, and not everybody wants to talk about it and I feel comfortable talking about it now, obviously, but it's a blow to your ego when that happens to you, because you think you prepare for so many emergencies that you have this illusion of control over, <laughs> you know, like, you know, even if we go in the drink, I know how to get myself out of the helicopter. Right. You're right, right, right. But in that situation, I had zero control. So that's super scary for someone who wants to be in control of things. So yeah, but I survived it. It's good. I, I actually love what you said right there. It's an illusion of control. I use yeah. that line quite a bit because it's, that's what it is. You, the majority of people think they have control and, and you do to a certain extent. Like I'm, I'm not saying like, well, I mean, that's I decide, why we train with, that's why we train exactly. all this stuff. So right. you can have some control. Yeah. Correct. Correct. Yeah. But fact of the matter is it's more of an illusion than yeah. anything else, because as soon as something goes sideways, you might not know how it's actually going to go sideways and how you're actually going to respond until that actually happens. So that is that okay. control that you think you have, that you think you're going to be going through. Yeah. That all that just, and I've watched it. I've watched guys do it. I've watched people's egos get in the way. Um, yeah. And it's, it's, it's very interesting when something actually happens and then yeah. you're like, Oh, Oh yeah. 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 That's, that's what it's like. The illusion of control. You think exactly. you have control. <laughs> so I, I really like that term. Really, really like it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, like I said, I mean, it's it's a great experience to talk about because it was a nothing burger because, you know, Rob instantly just took over and, and it was fine, which That's is perfect. what we trained to do. Yeah, exactly. Which is exactly yeah. what you're supposed to do. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing yeah. when teamwork actually works. <laughs> I know. Sometimes it works, even when you're not an expert communicator. Like in that case, I wasn't. I was just like getting out of my mouth what I could. And he yeah. picked up on it and was like, oh, okay, she's serious now. <laughs> yeah. 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 She wants to do something. So, yeah. yeah. I like that. Yeah. I like that a lot. Um, I'm going to back up real quick. Cause you said a catch. Now I know what that means. And, and we used to practice that all the time in the coast guard terms of catches and matches and it's controlled instrument approach to the water and then a manual approach to the water off the top of my head. Is that accurate? So, yeah. Computer approach to a coupled hover and a manual approach to a coupled hover yeah. um, okay. are the terms. Okay. Going back into the recesses. Well done. Well <laughs> Don't done. ask I, me I can... anything else. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You know, I wasn't sure of it either. So like between the two of us, <laughs> we we're going to come up with something great. <laughs> Yeah. Well, so what it means is what it means is that what should have been happening is that I was just very lightly holding the controls and letting the, the aircraft do what it was supposed to do and just monitoring that. Um, but I think what might have happened and it's impossible to tell, I don't know if glancing out the door made me grip the cyclic and maybe actually give some input or not, but we didn't, I mean, we never left a controlled 50 foot hover. It's not like, you know, we went, got any lower than that. It's just that I don't know what I honestly can't speak to. Like, did I put some input? I have no idea, but just the fact that, you know, Rob just took the controls and got us away from the water. We were fine. Perfect. Perfect. Man. Thank you for the debrief on that. I appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. All right. So anything else out of Miami that stands out for you? 
because I like Miami. Yeah, I mean, like I said, it was just busy. Um, I felt really proficient. I mean, other than that one moment, that one hiccup. Um, but Miami was where, so now I'm I'm making 04 uh, and I'm in for 15 years now. And I kind of have like this, this epiphany that, you know, if, if something happens to me, like I poke an eyeball out, then uh, uh, I don't have a college degree. Like, wh- what am I going to do after I retire? I'm going to be flipping burgers. So, and then of course, like the detailer and everybody's like, you maybe want to get a degree. So, okay, well, I, I fine, I'll go get a degree. So I did, I, I jammed um, and uh, did American Military University. And by this point I'd had, like, I'd gone, I'd had fits and starts of going to school. Like I did a little Embry riddle in, um, in San Francisco, but then nine 11 happened and I had duty like six times that month. So I couldn't finish the class. So it was like off and on. So I basically finished three years worth of school in a year and a half via correspondence with American military university, just in time to apply for the coast guards graduate school programs. And I had some really good mentoring, um, from Steve Reynolds, who said, you know, there are these really cool programs, graduate school programs, and here's, here are some that I think that would be good for you. And so he made those, those suggestions to me. I would, I didn't know that they were open to me or, or how to navigate that until, you know, he showed me that. And, um, and so I was fortunate to get picked up for the master of public administration program and the coast guard sent me to Harvard for a year after Miami, which back to Boston, back to yes, Cambridge. So, uh, yeah. So high school dropout enlists in the coast guard and, um, makes her way up and gets to go to Harvard paid like for a year i didn't even have to like put a uniform on it was amazing do you know amazing. how many people try to get to harvard and can't get in i know i mean I know. well I, done i'm very grateful very grateful to the coast guard for that so yeah man it congratulations yeah, yeah and then cool. i was the i was the aviation detailer where i lost you know a quarter of my friends every year while i was there and then <laughs> i went to the ops in la <laughs> so yeah oh my gosh good times <laughs> so ops in la anything there yeah i mean you know that, that was a rough tour for me to be honest um la uh, yeah it was okay. i had a hard time i had i had some medical stuff go on personally oh, okay no worries so uh, huh we don't have to talk about that if you don't want well i mean you know, people have medical stuff happen. And so, and it, and it can affect your flying career. And that's what happened for me. I mean, it affected it in, in some ways. So, um, I was having migraines that, so uh, girl problems, I was having migraines associated with my menstrual cycle. And as it turned out, they got worse and worse over the years, but I, as I got more senior, I got control over my schedule a lot more. So I made sure that I wouldn't fly or have duty, during those days when I was at risk, but they got, and of course, I'm not going to talk to the flight surgeon. Like I'm not telling anybody about this. I'm going to try and manage it with like diet Coke and M&Ms and, you know, chocolate and, and ibuprofen, you know, and I'm good to go. Like I, I can function. Well, it got so bad that I was basically on my knees vomiting outside the emergency room. My husband, you know, had to take me in. It was bad. And I would like, I never understood migraines before I experienced them. I was like, nothing can be that bad. Well, I would not wish them on my worst enemy. Well, they were, yeah. it turns out we felt like I got, I was grounded for a little while for that. And, um, 
and went to neurosurgeons and all this stuff. And finally, you know, talked to a girlfriend who was also having migraines and it was birth control. I was having, oh, wow. going, I was going through withdrawal from the hormones for my birth control. So then I got off and I was instantly cured. I was instantly cured. I've never had a migraine since my husband and I went into no negotiations about who was going to do what I had had two C-sections already. I was like, it's your turn, buddy. And we just were not as careful as maybe we should have been. And now I have a beautiful 11 year old boy who plays guitar and is really cool. Uh, who, uh, I had gave birth to while I was the operations officer. So that's not exactly what you're looking for from your ops boss. Right. So yeah. nice. nice. Yeah. So that between that and, um, I think there were some leadership differences, like leadership style differences, uh, between me and, and my command. And so, um, so yeah, that ended up being my last aviation tour because of all that, not because I wanted it to be, I really, thought I had a lot to offer, um, you know, continuing in leadership in aviation, but I obviously found ways to continue elsewhere. But while I was there, uh, you know, now my role has shifted from not just flying, but also taking the calls and making the decisions about when we launch. And it, Los Angeles was an interesting, uh, so this air station no longer exists. <laughs> right. They're Point Magoo now, right? Yeah, they've got the deployments. Uh, it's like an air fac. I don't know if, what they're calling it these okay. days out of Point Magoo. And then then you've got San Diego to the south. So, um, yeah, so it was interesting because there's so many helicopters in L.A. I, that, is, that was surprising. And then also the relationship between the air station at the time, and I'm sure it's still the case that they do training with Baywatch, and, you know, Baywatch, all I knew about Baywatch was, you know, Hasselhoff and this TV show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought it was fictional, but though, what an incredible professional group of, of people who start when they're very young, um, in the lifeguard programs. I mean, I think the lifeguard program there starts when they're like eight years old and then they continue like these guys are lifers they, and they're so professional, such a joy to work with. Um, so there are a lot of rescue services out there. So it doesn't surprise me to be honest, that they made that decision about the air station. I, I, you know, I can see that. Um, but when we did launch, you know, a lot, we were typically like, if, if there was a case out at Catalina, there, we had a lot of cases out at Catalina, we were kind of the last resort. We were like the last people who would go fly in that shit, you know? Um, so, so as ops, nobody I'm else like, is okay, going, let's call the coast yeah, guard. Don't go. Yeah. Call the coast guard. They'll go. <laughs> yeah. And that's basically how it went. And, um, and so then I would, and then I would be doing the, the questions, you know, as the operations officer of like, okay, is this going to actually save life or is this person stable enough to wait for the weather to clear or wait for the morning and, and making those judgment calls of like, you know, we all want to jump in the helicopter and go, but sometimes you don't need to. Right. That person's okay. I mean, you know, yeah. Can you come back from that flight and say you saved a life? You can, but they probably would have been okay anyway. So like that was a, a new experience to, to be the person to sometimes say, no, we're not going to go. Yeah. This is uh. can we talk about this a little bit more? Can we, yes, can we please. dive into this? Oh, I like yeah, it. Yeah, let's like do it. it. So I yeah. just had a guy on by him, a Brad Milliken and Brad Ooh, was, yeah. he, he was in the yeah. operations center. He was the one that, you know, Brad. I do. Yeah. I've, I've uh, run into Brad a few times. Yeah. 
Love it. Love it. Great guy. Great conversation. If anybody has listened to that episode, go back, check it out. Uh, but he was in the op center. He was taking phone calls. He was the first person to get on the radio. And when you hear mayday, 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 he'd come right. on. This is U.S. Coast Guard. How can we help you? Right. My, and I had, had that experience is... very early in my career. So I had seen that side of things and I knew how that worked. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. what the greatest part about that is, is now you've turned into literally the go or no go based on the information that they give you. Yeah. That's kind of a trip because now they're saying, Hey, this is what we've got. We mm -hmm. think we should go. What do you, it's now up to you. That's, that's a big decision. Yeah. So there's, so I wish I had kind of like uh, uh, refreshed my memory on this before we talked, but there, you know, the thing that made it very easy for me is that we had very good guidance at the time. And I can't remember whether it was at the ops conference or how, like about from the flight surgeons about very specific questions to ask, like, uh, of like, is this going to, to, um, is this person going to die if we don't pick them up basically? And like, there were a, a series of questions that we could drill down and get the flight surgeon on the phone and have a conversation about this patient you know, get whatever doctor, if there were doctor is a doctor, like out on Catalina, get them all on a conference call. And like, let's like, like, let's talk this out. Like, is this person going to die if we don't launch right now? Okay. Probably not. Okay. Oh, now, um, you know, what is their timeline before they lose a limb, you know, before we're going to have to amputate that leg? Um, you know, okay, well, let's, if we can get out there safely, let's like not make them lose a leg. Let's, let's launch for that. Or realistically, can we just, give them some pain meds and can they make it to the morning, you know, because, you know, there were times yeah. when we would get calls and everybody's like, we got to go. And, and, but the truth of the matter was, you know, that person is in, is in some discomfort maybe, but it can be managed on site until we can do this operation safely. We can wait until the morning and do yeah. it, you know, with daylight um, or when the fog clears or whatever. So, Yeah. Yeah, I felt, you know, it 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 felt like a lot of responsibility, but I also felt really well equipped to make those judgment calls. I don't know. I never felt super um intimidated by that because I just had so much experience, you know, that's the coast yeah. prepared me for that. So, I felt like I knew what I was doing for the, uh, to the best I could, you know. Well, I have no doubt. I I have yeah. no doubt for all the everybody in that position. I mean, you you make it to that yeah. position for a reason. You yeah. experience knowledge and um, and just the privilege of doing the job for so long. I'm exactly. all about it. Yeah. But it's just one of those things that, again, in the in the chain of events, mayday, 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 guy on the radio, yeah, this is a Coast Guard, go ahead. Hey, ops, this is what we've got. We'd like to yeah. launch them. Yeah, go. So there's yeah. that chain and there's a, there's a checkpoint at every chain. To make sure that there's no emotions that are involved with Correct. launching somebody else and going and going crazy about it. So, Correct, then, yeah. Um, yeah. One of the things that I like to, to talk about is I would rather be on call, ready to go. So even if there's something in the works, potentially, like, just give me a heads up. Like, Absolutely. I, don't get me wrong. Like, yeah. the SAR alarm yeah. goes off, go, go, but go, You can go. start thinking about it. And you and your input, like, your input is a critical piece of that too like what are you going to be able to do for this survivor like no absolutely yeah you need to everybody needs to be 
problem solving immediately with as much information as they have. And the whole crew is part of that for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I like that. I like the, I like that opportunity and, and it doesn't always happen again, case by case. And sometimes mm-hmm. you're like, yeah, we're not calling the, let them, it's just going to take sleep. We'll, yeah. yeah like, we'll like do if, it in the morning. If, and there were, and there were times where it's like, uh, is it, do we, you know, set off the alarm and get everybody going or can we, can they sleep because we're not sure we're going to do this. So why, why disrupt their rest? Um, before we know that it's something that we want to do. So yeah, 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 all of that stuff. Yeah. Crazy, because you're getting woken up. So you're like, you know, oh, what? I was up I'm all the time. Mood. I'm, I'm waking <laughs> them up just because I'm up. <laughs> <laughs> I was up all the time. Yeah, that that's hilarious. Fun. Nice. No, that was the main thing. Yeah, that was in terms cool. of search and rescue, like the main thing that that was a really great experience there. And then I took all that, um, took all of that cumulative, accumulated experience, uh, from all of the years in the Coast Guard doing, I mean, we haven't even talked about like a lot of the law enforcement that I did, um, enlisted, but like you take all of that, well, you just take all of that and throw it into, uh, me going to joint interagency task force South, where I was the targeting chief for counter narcotics interdictions. Um, in the Eastern uh, Pacific and the Caribbean, and with multinational resources at my disposal, getting, and it was basically like, it was almost like getting briefed for a SAR case every day. I would go into it every single day. We had a morning targeting meeting. I would get the intelligence on all of the potential cases. And so like trying to make decisions about the credibility of each report, like how, how accurate do we think this is? What asset is the best asset to put on scene? So it's all, it's all very similar to doing search and rescue, you know, what's the most capable boat, aircraft, whatever, to target this potential case. And, and in some cases, occasionally those law enforcement, uh, cases turned into SAR cases too. So just kind of a great way to culminate, um, all of that experience. Kind of like what law, Ellie, like law enforcement that would turn into a rescue. What do you mean? Mm? Well, uh, I mean, like just thinking about these cases, like some of these boats that people were on, like, I mean, these, these are pig farmers, you know, they're, they're low on the, uh, the chain of sort of the hierarchy of drug movements and they put these people on these boats that are like ill-equipped you know they've been out there for days without food trying to transit from like from the coast of Colombia to Ecuador you know and it's this long way in a little boat you know with no food and so so yeah like some of these some of those folks ended up needing that kind of assistance too wow so, yeah Yep. Go in as law enforcement, and then all of a sudden, it's now it's uh, humanitarian rescue, for sure. Out, yeah, food, yeah. water, shelter. Yeah, yeah. Dang, yeah. Yeah. Wow, wow. Good times. <laughs> Good times indeed. Mm-hmm. As we reminisce, I like this. I like this a lot. Yeah, I got to live in Key West too. That was cool. So. Oh yeah, that's rough. Key West, <laughs> Florida. Jeez. Yeah, it was pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was never down there, so I, I can't I can't speak to that, but 
<laughs> well, while I was there, so um, if we backed things up to to uh, earlier in my career, um, you know, I I I didn't really like it. My whole like enlisted time, I didn't really like get a sense of like anything's different because I'm a girl. I mean, yeah, there were ship birthing issues or whatever, but nobody ever treated me differently. I was just one of the crew and whatever. And it really wasn't until flight school where I started to feel like maybe not everybody wanted me to be there. And it was because I was a female and I was like, what's this about? That's weird. And then some of that crap, you know, some of those guys in San Francisco were just equal opportunity jerks, but some of them like would, it was very deliberately like about me being female. And so I experienced these things and, um, you know, never when I was enlisted, I never wanted to like make a big deal about being female or like stand out anymore. I just wanted to be one of the crew. But as I, as I got more senior and I had ex experienced a lot of really weird stuff and negative things, I discovered the value of having female mentors and being a mentor for them in networking us. So I kind of was really involved, especially when I went to be the detailer and in bringing our women together. So I know that you uh, probably are aware and I, and you've had folks on here, I think who've talked about the women in aviation international conference where a whole yep. bunch of us converge. Well, I, I'm proud to say that I'm, I was a big part of establishing that annual tradition of sending huge groups. I mean, we were, women were going before I was a detailer and Francis Masali was a detailer, but, but we had no formal coast guard, like all of the things that they do now, where there are all these mentoring sessions and panels and all those things were things that we established when we were in the office. So I'm really proud to see that they're continuing those. And as part of that, I started writing um, articles about the Coast Guard for Aviation for Women magazine to highlight us as an employer of choice. And while I was in Key West, I wrote an article about the three female swimmers who were still on active duty at the time. Nice. Yeah. Sarah so, Faulkner, uh, Karen Voorhees. You know, Sarah, Sarah, oh. Sarah was out. Sarah okay. was out at the time. So it was Karen Voorhees, Jody Williams, and, and Jamie, Jamie Valencourt. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. And um, it's so funny. Like I, I so I really appreciate those. I I really appreciate those ladies for their trust. I mean, I was an 05 cold calling. I knew Jody a little bit. And I think I knew Karen a little bit. Like we had at least met. So they, but when I called Jamie, she was like, I'm not talking to you. Like, yeah. Oh yeah. You too. Yeah. You could. So yeah, you know her. So she, um, yeah, she, the thing that you said at the beginning of this, when I, when I started asking her questions, I was like, so, you know, tell me, she's like, I don't really have anything to tell you. I don't have a very, I don't have a story. And I was like, well, well just humor me. Like, <laughs> how did you end up in the coast? You know, and I started asking her questions. And of course she has the most outrageously inspiring story. Totally. Um, she's amazing. Um, but all those ladies are gone. And so, uh, I wanted to say like, um, one of my proudest moments as a human being was, uh, after I retired. So Jamie and I, talked for a minute about collaborating on something and I, and I was gonna, um, I was gonna do another article because 
she and Jody were retiring. I think Karen, I don't know if Karen was even still in or whatever, but like you were going to have no female uh, ASTs anymore. And I was like, well, maybe I can write another article for Aviation for Women magazine as kind of like a recruiting piece. And so in 2021, I was retired. I went all through the like proper channels and asked Coast Guard Public Affairs for permission, et cetera, et cetera, and went and um, went to North Carolina and uh, visited with Jamie and her family. And then I got to go to the school and I worked out with the ASTs and I was able to hang. I mean, I wasn't like picking up, picking up as much weight as they were, but I was able to do the full workout. Well done. Thankfully there were no (laughs) pull-ups. Anyway, that's a very big moment of pride. Um, but that that's awesome fell apart because the program was a bit of a mess at the moment. Like the pool was shut down and they hadn't, they were still talking about moving. And so I just, it kind of fizzled. Um, but anyway, I worked out with the swimmers that one time. (laughs) Well done. Well done. And you hung with instructors. Yeah. At the school. (laughs) That's awesome. Very proud. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'd wear a feather in my cap for that one too. (laughs) <laughs> Heck, I do all the time just because I, I was gonna to say. <laughs> I, I was gonna say you probably worked out there a few times. <laughs> just, just a handful, just just enough to get a set of crows and then call me a swimmer. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh! Ready. All right, so you conveniently enough also went to Barbados and you had to deal with a whole bunch of Eastern Caribbean some. Uh, let's see, it was Hurricane Maria in 2017, like dealing with a bunch of that. What was that all about? Yeah, so um, conveniently enough. No, I uh, on my list of, of uh, things that I aspired to do in the Coast Guard for a really long time was to do one of these um, overseas tours that we have. We have these defense attache, Coast Guard liaison officer jobs in foreign countries. And, you know, I had done my international relations degree. And then that public administration degree I got at Harvard was very focused on national security and international relations. And so I saw this opportunity to ask for one of those jobs. And I got assigned as the senior defense official to Barbados in the Eastern Caribbean. So I basically had seven island nations where I was the senior military U.S. representative to all of their chiefs of defense and chiefs of police. I was also the senior advisor to the U.S. ambassador to the region. And then um, the representative of Barbados military interests to U.S. Southern Command. So like lots of stuff going on there. And it's a Coast Guard officer because obviously most of their stuff is maritime. So you know, they've got drugs moving up through the islands. They've got um, search and rescue that they need to do that's in the maritime environment. And what we do, the Coast Guard does is we do, well, the Southcom combined with the Coast Guard is we help fund uh, small boats and give people training on how how to conduct these operations. And we do major military exercises with them. So that was what my job was. And uh, yeah, the first the fall that I got there, it was an insane hurricane season. I mean, we you we all saw it on the news for like Puerto Rico and the impacts that it had up there. 
but where it had the most impact in my region was um, in Dominica, which is this gorgeous um, mountainous terrain island. It looks like a jungle or it looked like a jungle uh, prior to Hurricane Maria coming through. And then afterwards, it like it was so lush and green. And then afterwards, it was just completely the place was completely flattened. And so a lot of like the, you know, again, culminating all of this experience, you know, um, pulling in multinational resources to help evacuate American citizens from that island to get um, aid into it, you know, aircraft operations. It was just really interesting experience for me. Um, Really uh, enriching too, in a way, because this was the first time in my career where um, I got to sit at the big kids table. So I always, I always joke about like the big kids tables where all the senior people sit right there are the back benchers. Right. And so yeah, yeah. anytime in my life where I got to sit at the big kids table, I was usually like one of very few women, if there were any other in the room. Well, the, the world just turned on its head. I stepped through the looking glass and I sat at this, at this table with all of the senior women or senior people in these islands, all of the, the diplomatic representatives, like my U.S. ambassador, um, the Canadians, the French, everybody, they all had women at the table and all the backbenchers were men. And I was like, wow, this is cool. This has never happened for me before. And these these people who are in these um, senior diplomatic positions are geniuses. I was the village idiot at this embassy. Like these people speak multiple languages. They are just the smartest people. However, their culture is very different than ours. Um, in that they don't come to decisions quite as quickly as we do. So it was sometimes frustrating in that way, but it was really rewarding to, to see what we could do. And um, out of that hurricane season, the, they have a regional security system. So all of these islands are signatories to help each other in times of need. And so um, they discovered, they realized that they needed to be able to have a deployable medical hospital facility uh, capability in these islands so that they could get, you know, tents, all the stuff that they would need to set up immediate medical care in a disaster like this that was happening on Dominica. And so I, I felt uh, very proud to be able to start um, getting them funding to, to begin to build this capability, uh, before I left, you know, it's a two-year tour, so things take time. And so hopefully that's all continuing, um, to grow. Man, that's incredible. Oh, that's awesome. I love that. Yeah. Yeah, Out of the curiosity, were you, were you at the head of the table? Just going to throw that out there. No, gosh, no, I was the junior, (laughs) I was the junior person. Oh, uh, so you're, you like, all, you're like on the, the far opposite side of the table. That's okay, though. Like, they were all women. I had never had that experience in my life. It was that's amazing. so cool. <laughs> yeah, it was so cool. It was crazy. Oh, I like that. Nice. Yeah. So now, so, what what are you doing now? Like, you yes. had an incredible Coast Guard career, which has brought you, wait, I, I don't even know if you actually told me, how many years did you serve? 28 years. Wow. Five enlisted. Yeah. And from, from one to Oh five. Yeah. That's awesome. Well done. It's a good run. I know. Thank yeah. you. It was a good run. Um, I had a nice retirement ceremony at us headquarters or coast guard headquarters where like lots of friends were in DC. So it just was really, you know, what was, was really cool at my retirement was to see all my cutter friends, the Seneca 
crew. Yeah. Like, that's how long you stay friends with people like that. You know what I mean? That was you so create neat. that connection and it just never yeah, lost. That's exactly. Cool. So that's cool. Yeah. So it was a really wonderful experience. But one of the things, you know, well, so while I was in Miami, I had this idea for a story in my head. It was like, it was a, about a girl who learns how to fly. There was some Haitian stuff in it. It was all like churning and churning for me. And I could not get it out of my head. And so when I was the detailer, I did this thing called National Novel Writing Month, NaNoWriMo, which is the month of November, this month, thousands oh, of people, thousands of people all over the world right now are working on writing a manuscript. Their, their goal is to hit 50,000 words by the end of November. And so I did this in 2009 and I wrote the story that was bothering me. And then I read it and it was garbage. It was absolute garbage. I was like, I know how to read, but I do not know how to write. I mean, I can write an award and I can write an OER, but I do not know how to do this creative writing thing. And so over the next several years, I did like workshops and stuff like that. And I ended up using the rest of my GI Bill while I was in Key West to get a Master of Fine Arts in Writing for Children and Young Adults. And so my plan when I retired was to start writing full time and, and get all these books out there that are in my head. And so that's what I did. Like I, I came home, um, from my retirement ceremony, which, and I gave myself a month to get like my house all in order, but like I had a, I had a plan of the day. Like I was at the gym at zero five thirty every morning, you know, yes. get the kids out the door. Yeah. Get the kids out the door and clean the house. And then I was gonna sit down and write. And I did, I, I did NaNoWriMo in November of 2019 with a new manuscript and it was trucking along and then COVID just like destroyed everything. The house was full of people, you know, nobody follows my orders around here. Like I put a plan of the day up, nobody followed it. I lost my mind. And so a plan of the day up. Oh my God. Yeah. I love it. I zero Like, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and nobody listened. Nobody. I tried restriction and it, they were like, wait, it's COVID. We're already restricted anyway. So <laughs> whatever. Anyway, yeah, I, I, I really kind of lost the bubble and, um, and I was what part of my plan also when I retired was to get back into aviation, like in the civilian world so that I could kind of keep, you know, nurturing my motivation around it. I, I mean, my whole goal is I want to inspire other young women to join us in aviation and, and that's the whole point. But like, I was a little beat down from my experiences in the coast guard. I needed to like my relationship with aviation needed therapy. And I, my goal was to like, go get it in the civilian world and go fly. But I couldn't do that either because of COVID. So I decided at the end of 2021, gosh, things fly, time flies at the end of 2021. I was like, I'd had this fantasy, um, of, reviewing all of the books that were ever written that featured women in aviation. And I decided at the end of 2021, I would like to do that. And during COVID, we, I had had some book clubs. I had a Harvard friends book club and I'd had a write my writing program friends book club. And I was like, wouldn't it be fun if I started a little book club and I had some other women in aviation to talk about these books with, and then, you know, uh, I could kind of have a sense of community and, and we could talk about the books. And so I started this thing and I just went on Facebook and I went into a bunch of the aviation groups, the women's groups. And I was like, Hey, does anyone want to do a book club? And like in five minutes, I had like 40 responses and I was like, Whoa, oh, that's geez. a lot of people. I just wanted like eight or 10. Right. You know, I just wanted a couple of people to talk to. So 
I'm like, oh, that's a lot to keep track of. How do you make this group thing? And so I made a group and I posted it and I had 600 members in the first week and I had 1200 members by the end of the first month. And I was like, for me, it was like the clouds parted and the light came down and shone on me and was like, you must do something with this. People want this. And so I did something with it. And I created this community around books that feature women in aviation with a website, an author interview series, kind of like you, I kind of started maybe like around the same time at the beginning of 2022 with a podcast where I interview these authors and it's just turned into a big thing. And and I'm back involved with um, Women in Aviation International at their annual conferences with this new community. So it's really fun to go to those conferences and see all our coasties continuing the legacy of the things that we set up. Um, and uh, and if you, if you, if people could see behind me, I put a bunch of books of, of our friends out here. I, I um, saw that. I did see yeah. that. Yeah, so I know that you've interviewed Darcy Guyant, who yeah, uh, who wrote Into this the Storm, wonderful little picture book. But he also has his memoir to seek and to save, and I have that out here. Um, I've got Ashley Leppard. Ashley's book was paired uh, with another book for last month, October's um, discussion list. So I interviewed Ashley along with a Chinook helicopter crew, um, Liz McConaughey. Uh, from the Royal Air Force who served in Iraq and Afghanistan. Hers is also the both of them are uh, fabulous books, a lot of stuff on PTSD um, in Liz's too. So I love Ashley's book. And then uh, we have Martha LaGuardia Cotide's book. So others may live about the history of the rescue swimmer program. So that's just a few. Yeah. Nice. Wow. Holy cow. That's great. So how does everybody find you? the literary aviatrix everywhere um i'm really proud of the new website i'm still populating it with some content like in the blogs and stuff transferring from when i first started this it was called the aviatrix book review and so this new website is like pretty slick because you can you can kind of sort the books which you i wasn't able to do on my old website so i'm really proud of it so you can go check it out and like if you like if you like to read period then you will find a book because this, this book, this website has over 600 books that feature women in aviation, but they're in all genres across aviation history. There's nonfiction, fiction, there's everything. So if you like to read, you'll find something. And if you don't like to read, you can listen to my interviews. And then a lot of these books are also on audio. So you can enjoy them that way, but they're really inspiring stories, really fascinating. You, um, interviewed, uh, Charles Morgan Evans, like this story about Valerie Andre, what oh my. an incredibly inspiring human being, period, yeah. man, woman, oh my otherwise. Gosh, yeah. What totally. and like, like she, she's like the OG rescue swimmer because she oh, yeah, was yeah. dangling under a helicopter in the nineteen yeah. early nineteen fifties, trying yeah. to figure out the search and rescue shit. Yeah, and then decided to be a pilot and go and in a neurosurgeon. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like. Yeah. So, so like the, it's just endless, like the cool stories that are out there um, and that are real, that are really inspiring. So it's just, a, I'm having fun. And yes. like you, I mean, honestly, Jason, so between this, between flight suit Fridays, I don't know what else is out there. Like it feels inevitable that something like this would happen, like that you or somebody like you, but I think it's you because of your energy 
Oh, here um, we go. Game on. That you that you would <laughs> that you that you would create this thing, this space where people could could tell their stories and do it in this slow format where where people can really engage and listen. And you know what? The you know, I'm obviously am very focused, at least with the things that I'm doing now on the print, the printed word on, on books, because I think that they have a lot of staying power. You know, I had books that sat on my shelf for 20 years and then I I picked it up and I read it now and it's still there. That story is still there. Well, oral histories, the way that you're capturing, capturing these oral histories is so important too. And, um, you're really making an impact in the world by doing this, by preserving this while you. you are clearly having so much fun. I totally so, am. And that's oh, I how I this. feel. Yeah. That's how I feel. So good for you. Yeah. I, I Thank absolutely you. love doing this is I, I agree with you. If there's a way we can remember stuff that happens. And one of the things that I, I love about even this podcast is I'm bringing stories of guys that you would never hear about guys, girls, exactly. I half the stories that even on the other side of the world from South Africa, New Zealand, Australia, yeah. Ireland. Oh my gosh. What they're doing is incredible. And, and we never hear about and look it. At, and look at how you, how you make our world smaller by doing that, by like showing that we're not the only ones doing these things. We have these brothers and sisters around the world that are, are professionals as well. And maybe we, we can learn something from them by, by hearing yeah. their stories. It's wonderful. That's how I feel about what I'm doing too. So that's amazing. Yeah. I, I, I love it. I absolutely love it. Yeah. So keep it going. You keep it going. I'll keep it going. We'll work yeah. together. This will be amazing. It, it is. It already is. It's already amazing. I and like the other it. thing too, that it complements is, is another thing that I'm involved in, um, uh, sort of like on the side, uh, just casually is, um, the Coast Guard Aviation Association has social media. So on the Instagram page, that's where I'm most active. Um, the Coast Guard Aviation Association is open to anybody who's served in aviation, flight mechanics, um, uh, rescue swimmers and pilots, but also to auxiliarists. And I think there is like another level of like friends of whatever. So anyway, you can go to the website and, and find out information about how to become a member. But I go on there and like shout out to all of the public affairs officers across the Coast Guard for all of the hard work that you're doing. I'm so impressed with the air stations. Um, and I want to shout out to Joey Feldman, who is an auxiliarist who volunteers a shit ton of time to Coast Guard Air Station Miami and does a fabulous job. And he kind of gins up like these little competitions with the other air stations to post about all your star cases. And all I do is just share those on the Coast Guard Aviation Association story because our friends um, on the staff and in particular, Sean Cross spends a lot of time. Um, you know, making sure that our history is preserved with notable SAR cases that you can just go there and just see all the archives for all this crazy stuff that the Coast Guard has done over, over many, many years. And some of the stories are incredible. Yeah. Mind blowing. Yeah. So yeah. that's just awesome. Another yeah. Another yeah. way that we're preserving our stories. So trying. Yeah. Yeah. Get them heard, get them out there. So they're not lost. I don't want them lost. Yeah. No, no, right that's on. good. Write books, people. <laughs> <laughs> or get on a podcast, people. Or get on a podcast. <laughs> Just going to throw that out there, too. <laughs> yeah. All right, Liz, I got one more question for you before I let oh. you go. Okay. You've So you've had an incredible career. 
You've done a lot, ups, downs, lefts, and yeah. rights. Yeah. Advice that you would pass on to all the ladies that want to come up, that want to be a pilot, that want to do and follow in your footsteps. What would you tell them? Well, I, I mean, I think my advice isn't just for the ladies. It's for everyone. I would say take the work seriously. Do your best with integrity, but don't take yourself seriously. <laughs> just relax no, I, like that. I, I, I think I was just I don't know I was super uptight I am not as uptight as I was <laughs> on active duty now I, I think I felt like like I needed to be on in a way that maybe I could have loosened up a little bit and in and, and might have made me a better leader I mean I feel like I was pretty good I my attitude as a leader was that if you're succeeding I'm succeeding and I wanted to do it anything and everything that I could to give you the tools and whatever you needed and, and opportunities that maybe you didn't even know about just the way that people did for me. That was my attitude as a leader. So I think I did some good things, but I think I could have been even better if I hadn't taken myself so seriously. So that's my advice for all of you. That's good advice. I like that <laughs> a lot. I like that a lot. Right on. Well, Liz, I cannot thank you enough for coming on, sharing the all stories and just what you did for your entire 28 years in the Coast Guard, what you're doing now to bring all these books together with all your reviews and podcasts, everything. I, I absolutely love it. So thank you for coming on and sharing all that with us. It was my honor and pleasure. And thank you for everything that you've done and are doing now. My pleasure as well. <laughs> uh, when I get down to Miami in that area, I'm calling you and we're going to yeah. go out and have a beer. Sounds good. Let's do it. Yes. I like it. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, we are out of here. Go. Now it's time for me to pull chocks and take off. But before I go, I'm always looking for the memorable rescues that people have done. If you have one that you're willing to share or know somebody who has a story, please feel free to reach out to me. I'd love to highlight it here at The Real Rescue. For everybody that is standing by for that SAR alarm, remember, those in distress are praying for a miracle. They are going to get you. So until next time, fly safe and swim hard. Thank you for joining me today here at the Real Rescue Podcast, powered by Vertical Helicast. We'd also like to say thank you to our sponsors for this episode, Breeze Eastern. They dedicate themselves to our helicopter rescue world. Since the very first helicopter rescue in November of 1945, Breeze Eastern has designed and manufactured superior rescue hoist solutions. While much of the technology and the unique mission requirements have changed over the past 75 years, their commitment to the rescuers, the operators, and those being rescued has not. Contact them today by visiting them at breeze-eastern.com. Com. Hey, rule number nine, don't forget to feed the rescue falcon. What I love about this rule is the way it came into fruition. After the guys came back from a SAR case, they have to go check into the hotel. They're still dressed up in all their rescue equipment from the helicopter. And the dude behind the counter looks at our hoist operator and says, what is that? pointing to his shoulder. 
On his shoulder, he had his harness with a shoulder guard, which protects him from the cable. He looked at that and said, this? This is for the rescue falcon. After a good laugh between the crews, and not three months later, Lenny Cunningham and I are standing duty in the Gulf of Mexico, Galveston, and what do we hear? A BAM! Something that hit the window. We open the shade, and there is a falcon sitting on the balcony after it had taken out a pigeon. Dazed and confused and sitting there for the next 20 minutes, it looked at us a couple times as though to say, What? What are you looking at? Still allowing us to take a few pictures, which was great. Now, for everybody else, what do I want you to use this rule for? Use this as your mascot rule. Fill in the blank of whatever it is. Don't forget to feed the blank. For us, it just so happened was the Rescue Falcon.